to be in league with all of the other Earthbound critters, that is the composition of the Rebellion. How can we create a storytelling around waging war that includes the acts of support and collaboration and life-giving and life-creating alongside the battles? Hello, hello. Welcome back to The Book on Fire. We are about to get into talking about Chapter 2 of Donna Haraway's Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the Thulu Scene. But before we begin, we have um, a couple announcements that we want to talk about. One of them is that uh, for those of you who are wanting to read along or wanting to read this book and are looking for it, who don't have the book already and don't have any place in their town where they can find it, um, we were informed by a listener that it's possible to find a PDF copy of it on the internet. Uh, so I don't know how to do that exactly, or I haven't looked into it, but if you do some creative searching, you might be able to find uh, a, a PDF freely available of Donna Haraway's Staying with the Trouble. And if you want to get the book itself and you're going to order it through the mail, we have something to say about that too. What's that, Janet? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to order a book online, we would love it if you, when procuring your book, would choose some outlet online other than Amazon. They are notorious for shortchanging publishers, and also they are out to monopolize and destroy the publishing industry, among other things, and generally working f as a military industrial contractor at this point. We order a lot of books online, and we usually use either a Libris, A-L-I-B-R-I-S dot com, or Better World Books. Those are two outlets that we like. Um, if you guys have favorites, we would love to hear what those are. Also, ABE Books is owned by Amazon, so don't let them fool you. Do you have anything to add to that? But yeah, don't support Amazon. Hopefully everybody knows by now that Amazon is not just a retailer, not just a bookseller, and even though they have behaved horribly in those fields, they are quickly becoming one of the most powerful privacy invaders and military contractors in the whole world. We also have some listener mail related to what we discussed last time that we are going to read and discuss at the end. So stick with us, okay? On to the book. Chapter 2 of Staying with the Trouble is called Tentacular Thinking, Anthropocene, Capitalocene, Thulucene. Tentacular Thinking. So to give a basic overview of what's going on in this chapter. Haraway is, she's basically leading up to an argument for her coining and her use, her preference for this term Thulucene, which we talked about when we talked about chapter one. But this chapter is, is specifically making an extended case for it. Uh, and she offers this in contrast to Anthropocene or Capitalocene. So the last part of the chapter is specifically about those three terms, but she gets us there 
um, slowly by laying the groundwork philosophically for why we need new words and why we need new stories and ways of thinking with the present. She introduces this idea of tentacles and tentacular thinking uh, as as a kind of reaching horizontal feeler engagement with the world with the world spends a little bit of time talking about sympoesis which we're not going to talk about today because that is the subject of chapter 3 in its entirety and she makes the case for the importance of storytelling and the importance of what thoughts think our thoughts and brings in Ursula K. Le Guin and Bruno Latour uh, as people who are trying to tell new kinds of stories and who are attentive to the quality of our stories before she gets into uh, the actual specifications of it, Anthropocene, Capitalocene, and Thulucene. So that's basically how the chapter goes. But it starts with laying the groundwork for like why we even need new stories to begin with. And so what's that part about? Haraway points to two main stories that have caused a good deal of damage and are foundational to our understanding here in the West. And one of those is the idea of the bounded individual, which means each of us is a finite self, discreet and self-contained. The other idea is humans as exceptional beings disconnected from the rest of life. These ideas are problematic in a lot of ways, but as science begins to expand and have capacity to outgrow the limitations of the minds that conceived of the science, we are seeing more and more evidence that the bounded individual actually does not hold up under scrutiny once we look at how life works. Um, Just to give a human body as an example... Each of us contains pounds of bacteria, and in fact, the number of bacteria actually outnumber our own cells that we are host of. Uh, We have bacteria who perform some of our body's functions that we could not live without. Um, Even part of our DNA is made of viral genes that we implemented a long time ago to be able to carry fetuses inside, so mammals themselves would not exist without viral DNA as part of our structure. Uh, what are some other examples of the ways that we are not discreet? Yeah, well, I'm even thinking about ways where our, like, the normal functioning of our human physiology is dependent on certain chemicals that we can only get from plants. It raises this question of where do we end when a chemical that's as important to our functioning as one of our own hormones or neurotransmitters is something that we have to get through our diet. From outside. That's a signaling chemical in our body. So it's like the berries that we graze on are part of our nervous system Mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. And these microbes that are in our gut are not just a part of our digestion, but are, they're a part of our immune system and everything. So it blurs the boundaries, you know, when some of, of what we think of as us that performs the functions of us in some other context seem to be not us mm-hmm. like the bacteria we are used to calling that not us you know there's right. us and then there's bacteria but it's part of us and mm-hmm. so it's hard to draw firm boundaries around the individual yeah and so science is eroding this idea at the very same time that 
we are realizing more and more that the creation of the bounded individual was necessary to get capitalism going. Oh, right. And was necessary to create the liberal democratic subject mm -hmm. at the same time, and how much violence it took to be able to even think of, to conceive of an individual that is an independent agent that mm -hmm. makes rational choices, that's not just part of an environment, right. and part of a community. That's And so all, these things are converging in this moment where science is questioning it and just politically we're questioning that very much as well. I would add too that I think that uh I I think Haraway should have said this and does not say this and part of what you just said reminded me of this is that science is not discovering something new. Science is catching up with indigenous wisdom from around the world. People have long understood that they were part of a greater web of life and that they were not individual subjects, that they were, their survival depended on their communities, on their tribes. And this idea that this is a discovery is actually science catching up with what was already known and was obliterated partially through the enlightenment practice that led to the neoliberal totally. or liberal subject. Mm -hmm. um, so... That is something I think is lacking in the book and should be acknowledged here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea of the discrete bounded individual is getting pushback from a lot of different sectors right now. Right. Uh, and one of my favorite expressions of this pushback is actually um, a quote. It's one of my favorite quotes from the book To Our Friends by the Invisible Committee. Maybe some of you know of this book. It's a book of radical French political theory. Uh, and I use this actually in my phytochemistry classes in our herb school, this very same quote. And the quote is, the world doesn't environ us, it passes through us. What we inhabit, inhabits us. What surrounds us, constitutes us. We don't belong to ourselves. Which is a very nice, you know, yeah. poetic and concise expression of this idea of where do we end what we inhabit inhabits us. There's no boundaries, firm boundaries between us and our environment. Yeah, so establishing that we need new ways of thinking, that we need new concepts, new ways of thinking is where the chapter gets going. And then to try and develop these new ways of thinking and talk about where people are going, trying to find something more adequate to the times, uh, she first introduces the idea of tentacular thinking. Haraway has this way of just introducing kind of concept after concept, and then she doesn't necessarily connect them all really rigorously. She just kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. lets, <laughs> lets them kind of percolate, lets them compost. And so one of them is tentacular thinking. And she relates this to, you know, a spider that, want, that part of its Latin name is Cthulhu, Lovecraft's Cthulhu has tentacles. Okay. Um, but she, she brings in this concept of tentacular thinking, thinking with tentacles and tentacles reach out and feel. In fact, uh, Latin tentaculum means feeler from tentare, which means to feel or to try. So we have this idea of instead of a kind of thinking that imposes and makes frameworks that deductively decide how things have to be. It's a kind of thinking that reaches out in different directions horizontally and comes into engagement with different other entities and ideas and things in the world. 
now. So um, that should be, if you're familiar with, if you think like Haraway at all, then that shouldn't be a very hard concept to understand. She has a quote here, the tentacular ones make attachments and detachments. They make cuts and knots. They make a difference. I like that part about it, that it has the feeling in it, because uh, I think we in our culture really split thinking and feeling apart. And what she is describing is a form of thinking that is embodied. If you think of tentacles as appendages that are reaching out and learning through tactile experience in the environs, then it means that we are using our whole sensorium and our whole being to think and to sense and to experience. And from that forming reactions and approaches based on a really embodied and felt approach, uh, which I really like that. And I like that it decenters the brain and puts the body in it when you use the word tentacular. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, which I think is really cool. So I see that in it. Yeah. And what I really appreciate here too is the tentacular thinking leads her into talking about the work of Tom Van Duren, who wrote a book called Flightways. And I was so grateful for this part because he writes a lot about working with birds and also working with grief. And this was such a relief to me because in the first chapter, you know, there's this like giddy excitement around all of the possibilities for us working across species and like looking at the capacity for change and for new, new collaborations. Um, and because I am someone who has gone pretty deeply into the extinction crisis, who understands really the level of harm that is happening and how the harm that's already been done, I kept having this feeling well up in me that was, what about the grief? Well, what about our grief? And where in all of this is the place for our grief? And I appreciate that this showed up this soon in the book because it was going to be a recurring issue for me if it did not. Um, but in it, she describes Van Duren's work and how he sees the practice of grief is absolutely essential to us being able to respond, that we need to see how bad things are and to grieve them to actually be able to act. And then without the awareness that leads to a great amount of grief, we will not understand how much needs to be done or what needs to be done. And the quote that I like from that section is, um, grief is a path to understanding shared living and dying. Human beings must grieve with because we are in and of this fabric of undoing. And here we see tentacular thinking applied to grief as well, because it is through feeling our way through these connections, feeling our way into the web of life and seeing and experiencing what is happening there that we are aware of what is at stake and what we have to grieve. So that feels important to me. And I think that for any of us that are thinking, well, what am I taking away from all this? how do I practice any of this? I'm holding that close, which is that we need to have a space to grieve and to grieve together collectively mm -hmm. to be able to learn mm -hmm. how to respond. Mm -hmm. And our response ability is absolutely built on the capacity for grief. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that grief showed up in chapter two because I was afraid that that necessary work was maybe going to be left out of the book. 
And this Van Duren character sounds like another person. I really want to read that. I might just have to go out and read, too. When we're doing tentacular thinking and feeling, when we're tapping into the experience of all the other companion species on planet Earth, then part of what we're tapping into is the grief and the loss in the web of life. And holding space to feel that, to let that grief go through the web and through us and through our bodies and resonate through our bodies is part of being with of and becoming with. Haraway is really, uh, she spends a few pages in this chapter really elucidating the importance of thinking, um, which might seem self-evident that she would be concerned with thinking, right? Because she's a writer. But to her, thought, and there's a fascinating part in here where she like references Hannah Arendt's um, work on Eichmann, the Nazi, and his inability to think, and work. I'm not going to describe that part, but the idea that comes out of it is that thinking is, she calls it a form of visiting or wayfaring. She uses these traveling metaphors, and this is Hannah Arendt, but also Haraway, using these traveling metaphors for thinking. So to think is, and this goes along with tentacular thinking being about the lines, to think is to travel along lines, to go visiting to go see new places and connect with things. No. And for her the proper way to think is this exploratory is this exploratory visiting, following lines and seeing where they lead. Yeah, one of her examples of this type of thought, the wayfaring thought of uh branching out. Mm-hmm across worlds and across fields that she gives an example of is Anna Singh, who wrote The Mushroom at the End of the World, which is a study, an ethnographic study of both Matsutake mushrooms and the people who harvest them and the people who love them and the supply chains they are part of and the ecosystem, disturbed ecosystems that they exist within. I read that book last year. Highly recommend it. Really cool book. But part of what Anna Singh does that's unusual, besides working in many disciplines, is that she is interested in the sites of disruption that are fertile ground for these Matsutakis, that are also fertile grounds for the exchange of different cultures and different kinds of people who are living on the margins of society and are doing peace work by harvesting these mushrooms and having a hustle when they can't legally work. Otherwise, many of them are Southeast Asian immigrants who have trouble finding work in the marketplace. So Singh is picking one this one commodity, you could call it, but also a pretty interesting being in the ecosystem that Matsutake exists in, uh, and following those mycelial threads through a network that all, goes all the way around the world. What I loved about the book is after having read a lot of ecology and biology a lot of times we see folks, scientists are only interested in pure systems that existed before contact with Europeans. So people are prefer native plants or more intact, rich ecosystems or highly developed climax plant communities, while seeing is actually interested in these novel ecosystems and these sites of rejuvenation in the face of disruption. Anna Singh sees the fertile ground that there is, or the the capacity for these places and sites of 
connection and new cooperations as a place we should be looking at because we can learn from these adaptive species and we can learn from these transitional systems that are becoming something new, both with people and with the rest of life there. Um, The quote that I wrote for her that I really like is, Matsutake tells us about surviving collaboratively in disturbance and contamination. We need this skill for living in ruins. So she's saying to us, we should be paying attention to the places where there is disruption and life is springing up there. And what does that life tell us? Instead of only paying attention to the pure systems that are undisturbed relatively in our minds. Mm -hmm. So Annette Singh is giving us an example of a way of studying and thinking and observing that notices what life does to respond to changing circumstances. Yes. Kind of. And Mm -hmm. what the what life is doing during a chaotic time. Yes. And what kind of new partnerships and combinations are being made. Mm -hmm. And I want to add here that she's not just interested in the more than human world or life that is not human. Mm -hmm. She sees those people that are harvesting it as also examples of adaptation and examples of people thriving and life thriving. Right. On the margins in in disturbed places. Right. Yeah, because one of the things about the book is that the mushroom harvests are possible as a subsistence income for these people because of certain disturbed environments that are also anthropogenic. Yes, absolutely. Right, that Mm -hmm. are human-created disturbance. Mm -hmm. So there's no purity, Mm -hmm. there's no original anything, there's no restoration of some past. It's just an ongoingness of adaptation and survival, but it's multi-species. Multi-species web creation for survival and even thriving in some situations. Some people... Mm -hmm the best part of their year is that month of harvesting, Mm -hmm. you know? So even uh, a form of reconnection you might not picture because it's so dependent on the market Mm -hmm. to exist. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Annette Singh in The Mushroom at the End of the World is, for Haraway, an example of tentacular thinking. Right. And tentacular anthropology, Mm -hmm. maybe. One that just follows lines of connection and adaptation to explore the variety of life's responses, Mm -hmm. including human life's responses to changing circumstances. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Haraway moves on in the pursuit of new ways of thinking that are up to the tasks of our times and new ways of thinking towards staying with the trouble uh, she she kind of moves on from tentacular thinking and spends a little while talking about storytelling and about the kinds of stories that we tell that impose limitations on how we can think. This is a kind of an important point in the chapter and why she even wants to bring up the Thulu scene as an important new concept. And to make this point, she she quotes an anthropologist that says, it matters what ideas we use to think other ideas with. And Haraway goes on to say, it matters what matters we use to think other matters with. It matters what stories we tell to tell other stories with. It matters what knots, not knots. What thoughts think thoughts. What descriptions describe descriptions. What ties tie ties. So she's still making a case for the importance of having the right stories in order to be able to navigate the current circumstances.
her quest、uh, for better ways of thinking and storytelling, Haraway comes to Ursula K. Le Guin, who is an author who's also very beloved in this house. And Le Guin's carrier bag theory of storytelling, which is a story conceived of a capacious bag for collecting, carrying, and telling the stuff of living. A leaf, a gourd, a shell, a net, a bag, a sling, a sack, a bottle, a pot, a box, a container, a holder, a recipient. That's a quote from Le Guin, and this is a theory of storytelling that is contrasted to the storytelling of the anthropos, which is the storytelling of the hero who's attached to the tool, the weapon, or the word. Uh, so this is important to Haraway too to contrast these different kinds of storytelling to get away from the we could say male gendered anthropos storytelling of the tool the weapon and the word and to conceive of this other kind the carrier bag type of storytelling and all of this brings us to Bruno Latour who's a Bruno Latour.、Uh, I've never read any of his work, but I I've heard his name before. He's a he's a sociologist and philosopher,、um, also French, who has a book and is kind of maybe famous for the phrase "We've never been modern." I think that's a book of his. So Haraway brings so Haraway brings Bruno Latour into the chapter at this point when she's kind of evaluating new ways of storytelling. Because Latour is also somebody who thinks we need new stories, who thinks we need better stories, and he is ready to use the term Anthropocene. That's that's part of I think what he's doing in here, and because you know she's about to argue against the use of the term Anthropocene, but he's really into it, right? Because he kind of invested in the Anthropocene in this way that he. He sees like climate deniers or people who are pushing against us, trying to find solutions as humans stuck back in the Holocene. It's kind of like、uh, he's almost like it's like you're talking about Neanderthals or something, right? Like where it's like we are the people who he calls Earthbound. So anyone who's tied to Earth, who are actually like, yeah, we're up to date, we're anthrop- Anthropocene, and we're acknowledging that we have a problem.、Right. And then those humans are back there in the Holocene. And want to live there, and they're trying to hold us back from、right. moving forward in together with the rest of the Earthbound. Yeah, like there's this whole world. So apparently, from here, like Latour creates this whole storytelling scheme in his works, where in his story, just like Chanet saying, the Holocene is where the humans live. That's where Bruno Latour puts the liberal subject and the bounded individual. Is back、right. in the Holocene with the humans as the humans,、mm-hmm. and so he contrasts that with well, let's leave the Holocene, let's l- quit being human, and let's inhabit the Anthropocene. And the actors in the Anthropocene are, even if they're human, are not called human. I mean, even if they're Homo sapiens, if they're in league with all of life, then they're part of the Earthbound, and、mm-hmm. the Earthbound is this capital E Earthbound. You know, so it's kind of like, what side are you on? Are you on the side of the Earthbound, inhabiting the Anthropocene, where there's things at stake and stuff we have to change, or are you refusing to leave the Holocene and you're just a boring old human? I know you have a lot to say about issues with the text and issues that Haraway has with、uh, Latour's text, but I just want to say that I love the concept of Earthbound because. 
it feels like a pact to me. It feels like we are bound, like like through a binding spell, to Earth and all of Earth's inhabitants, and that we are actually Earth-bound. Like, I have made a blood pact with the land to stand with and for it. And so I love the concept of Earthbound, even if I am more ambivalent about the Anthropocene. Yeah, it's a really great... It's such a good word. It's a great term. Yeah, it's an awesome term. And so this is our really our first introduction to Bruno Latour, um, is just what she's bringing in here. So I know, I know he's pretty famous right now. A lot of people are reading him. But so what do we got with Bruno Latour? The Haraway brings him in in this chapter. I get what... I get what she's doing. She's saying, Bruno and I are aligned in certain ways. We both are looking for new stories. We are both nourished by post-humanism in the sense that we want to decenter the human as the actor in history, mm-hmm. as the one who makes history. We want all the critters, you know, to be on the stage, and we want humans to just be among the critters. They share all of that. And she brings him in because although she shares all of that with him, number one, she diverges from him because he loves the term Anthropocene and wants to inhabit it. But also, I think she sees him as bringing in this masculine sort of Anthropos type of storytelling Mm -hmm. in contrast to the more carrier bag type of storytelling of Ursula K. Le Guin. And... I get why she says that, because apparently, in the story that Latour is telling, the Earthbound, that are inhabitants of the Anthropocene, go to war mm. against their enemies that would, I guess, keep us in the Holocene. Right. And so, I mean, this is all just briefly sketched here in a couple of pages, but Latour contrasts, it's very interesting though, Latour contrasts the the police action with the war. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for an anarchist, this is like hitting on some ways of thinking that I, I can like relate to. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so to invoke a police action, this is the way that I'm reading this. So yeah. to invoke a police action is to say, let's equip the authorities with a new, better way of thinking mm-hmm. that they can then enforce. Oh, right. Yeah. That is what it's saying. That they can police Mm -hmm. the world (laughs) according to the new law. Cap and trade. (laughs) Cap and trade. (laughs) Or even like, maybe like tentacular think. Well, I I don't know if it works like that. But but post-human thinking is going to be like the new law. And it's going to be enforced by police action. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a way of preserving the basic structure of power. Right. A hierarchical structure of power. Mm Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you got to get in line. you got to get in line. You know? This is the new order. This is the new order. Right. And a fight to see who's going to establish the new order. Right. That's going to be enforced by police action. Versus what, what he calls war, which is basically this other idea, which is, he says, in war there is no referee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Uh huh. Which is, um, I mean, these were kind of exciting ideas to me because I'd never encountered them before. But right, it's like there's no UN, there's no court system, mm-hmm. 
there's no one that you can appeal to and say, this other country or this other corporation or this other force is not obeying mm -hmm. the climate accords or is not obeying, you know, there's no referee. There's not going to be a police action that makes actors comply with what the new thing is supposed to be. Instead, it's just a power game. Right. Right? It's just who's going to win mm -hmm. in this, like, array of who's going to sort of define the future, mm -hmm. you know? And it's not like, I mean, the way that I am riffing off of Latour, it's not like there's going to be a winner in one contest, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like the war is diffuse, the war is takes place in different ways and it looks different in different corners of the world and in different areas and different fields and stuff but the war is kind of his encompassing term for all of that and so yeah it's not the super bowl it's not like are the critters and the earthbound gonna win the super bowl over you know the humans that inhabit the holocene but he is invoking this idea that there are enemies and the earthbound have to be in league to fight against them Mm -hmm. uh, and so for me, it's interesting because Haraway is bringing Latour in here partially because she doesn't like the martial mm -hmm. metaphor right. and, and the war metaphors. And mm -hmm. she thinks that that's not a proper carrier bag story of history, mm -hmm. that that's more of the masculine anthropo, right? Because it's war. Phallocentric. Phallocentric. Mm -hmm. Violent perhaps, right. you know, force-oriented, all of this. But I have to say that the Latour stuff, it brought in something for me that I thought was kind of lacking or that I was wondering about up to this point in this book, and that is the political analysis. Totally. The political analysis. Because lacking an actual analysis of who is on the side of what Right. And and how is power constituted mm -hmm. and what are the incentives for continuing the project of human progress against nature right. and against the critters? Without that, it gets hard to actually bring these thoughts down to earth. Yeah. Right? And like Haraway talks about that we need new stories, that we need to have new stories and this new story and, and this new kind of storytelling is what's going to is what's going to help fix the situation mm -hmm. basically. And it's that universal we Ugh. that bothers me. It's so annoying. It's that universalizing we. It's like who needs the new stories. Right. Right? The fact that we don't tentacularly think and make these experimental connections with everything that might be called other in the environment and in the world and in the universe is partially a product of the... The conditions we live in. The conditions that we live in and that we are forced uh -huh. into a relationship as a economic agent in the economy as an individual that is divorced from nature and community. It's not just a failure of the imagination that everyone is having. Mm -hmm. It's being forced on us from above to have this failure of imagination. Mm -hmm. And you can see it happen as the colonial project continues. Yeah. People that already exist organically with tentacular thinking that understand that they're connected to everyone else and that they're connected to all of life mm -hmm. have that forcibly removed mm -hmm. when their survival is at stake. Exactly. Yes. 
Exactly. So, yeah, it's a huge problem here. Right. And it doesn't make the book and the ideas in the book, you know, it doesn't take away their value. You know, I'm not trying to say, I'm going to throw the book out the window now because of this. But there's this big question that haunts all of, like, philosophy, academic thinking, all of this stuff, which is, who is this for? Is the university in the traditional role of, like, the scientist supposed to be providing explanatory concepts for the culture at large? And, like, what is the culture at large, you know? Is the hope here that these ideas are going to make their way into the halls of power mm. in some way? Mm -hmm. And the world would be remade that way? Mm -hmm. That feels kind of like Latour's idea of the police action. Right. Unless tentacular thinking would would dismantle the idea of policing right. if it got into the halls of power. You know, that's like the... Good luck with that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but but I think that's what the hope is for some of sure. this stuff, is that, like, if, if only a new story could get into the halls of power, then the halls of power wouldn't even look like they mm -hmm. look right now. Power would dismantle itself or something. Um, but... If these ideas are not for the halls of power, then who are they for? Are they for us? I think they are for us. I mean, they might be... F I'm not sure. She might have, a, have had a much broader audience in mind. But I will say that with all of those critiques in mind, which I absolutely agree with and see as a limitation here, I think that there is something to be said for consciousness shifting and making space for new ways of thinking mm -hmm. that can become a groundswell and shift. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think we have to be talking about what does it mean if the people in power don't give a shit what words we're using for what era we're in <laughs> or how we think about kinship. But the power comes from grassroots, collective consciousness shifting that we are actually going to do something with later and do something with now, and there has to be this groundswell of action or the words or in an echo chamber, really. Right. Yeah, I think what me and Jenner are saying is that we have some affinity with this idea of Latours, as far as we understand it, that making alliance with the more-than-human world and abandoning the privileged position of the human to be in league with all of the other earthbound critters that is the composition of the rebellion. Right. Absolutely. The way that I'm reading this, these are ideas for us mm -hmm. down here. Not the power brokers, not the power elite, not the people who control the money and the institutions of the world, but and that we hopefully can use these ideas to gain strength against the powers that would sunder those connections and make a thing out of everything mm -hmm. to submit it into the engine of the economy that's going to destroy the world. At the same time, Latour seems to be, one of his concepts is the trial of strength, and somehow the earthbound have to pass these tests of strength. I understand how Haraway can come to that with some criticism, that this, oh, is, a, sure. that this is a very kind of muscular, macho, macho yeah. kind of storytelling. And for me, I feel like another danger is there with... Latour's concept, and it is that because we have grown up living and breathing certain ideas about action and certain ideas about response and what is effective and what is real and what is what power looks like, we can limit our ways of understanding what resistance looks like. And I think that when Latour says war, 
it means something really specific that might actually exclude some ideas that we might put under the carrier bag theory. Hmm. And okay, yeah. I think that I want to understand war as not just extreme heroic acts of defense of Mother Earth. I want to see war as actually waging battles that include protecting the people who are vulnerable, creating networks of support and being prepared to make the world that we want to live in in the ruins of the old while we fight to defend life, including us, from the forces that want to extract resources. Mm -hmm. How can we create a version of war or a storytelling around waging war that includes the acts of support and collaboration and life-giving and life-creating alongside the battles. Mm -hmm. I think I would add here too, just to add on before we move on, because uh, this is a huge topic, the anarchist theory of social war. Uh-huh. Oh, right. Which is that there has never not been war. Right. Our existence under the current order is the constant war being waged by power Right. Against the self-organizing of the subjected ones into a powerful force that could contest power. Right. And that there's a spectrum of times that feel more like war and more like peace, but there's never peace. Right. There's never not war. Right. Um, so what you're saying is that Haraway's acting a little bit like Latour is saying calling for war. Mm -hmm. And you're saying there's already war. There's already war. Okay. Or right. that's what, in the anarchist theory of social war, that is the premise. Is that we are never in the absence of war. And so it's just, how are we going to act within it? You know? And war is more than just the battlefield. Right. War is everything that supports the people who are trying to survive the siege by the enemy. Uh-huh. War is all of it. So war would contain the carrier bag. Approach. Oh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's still... It's it, a war. <laughs> it, it's still in some ways opposing theories. Yeah. I don't I don't know. Okay. There's definitely opposing emphases. Mm What are we going to call the era that we live in right now? That's what this chapter is all about. As Dave mentioned earlier, the geologic term for this time period that began at the end of the last ice age is the Holocene. Uh, but there's been a push to call this time that we live in the Anthropocene which is because we as a species are leaving a geologic record of our time here. The idea is we're going to name this geologic era after the species that is having the greatest impact on all of life on Earth. Naming it the Anthropocene is a way of acknowledging the impact of our species on life on Earth. 
that we are leaving a mark and we are leaving a record. As Haraway continually says, the fossil-burning humans create more fossils than ever before. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that's the idea, is that we are marking the Earth, and there will be a big, giant stripe in the strata that says humans were here. The reasons for doing that is to actually shift consciousness and acknowledge that we, in the culture that we're living in right now, are doing great harm and having an impact as large as any of the other mass extinctions. But again, there's some pushback against this that Haraway is part of because it's a little more complicated than that. Because, as Dave was mentioning, who is we? Mm -hmm. right. Is it actually humans? Is it all humans? Is it our whole species? In fact, Homo sapiens lived for a very long time without creating a mark on the geologic record. And that's why the beginning and end of what people are calling the Anthropocene is fuzzy, and we can't really figure out when we're going to date that. Some people think that as soon as Polynesian islanders started moving to different islands and causing extinctions on those fragile island ecosystems, that is when the Anthropocene would, would start. Others would say that the Anthropocene did not start until the era of colonial expansion and domination and conquest in the 1400s. Um, so when we, right, with the redistribution of species and right. the extinction of lots of species that happened at that time period. Oh, yeah, with the Columbian right. exchange, as yeah. they call it. Yeah. yeah. So when do we date the Anthropocene? Anthropocene Which is kind of also the beginning of capitalism. Right. Yeah. Which leads us to another concept or the, another term that some people put forth that we should be using instead of Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. So the pushback against the idea of calling it the Anthropocene is that we are making the damage done synonymous with our species, while there have always been and always will be people who do not want to participate in this, who have not been part of this domination, who have not chosen to be part of the marking of life and the destruction of life. When we call it Anthropocene, some would argue that we are saying that it is part of being human to leave such a mark on the geology. And we are also conflating our species with the economic system that actually is leaving the mark. Uh-huh. Right. Right. I think also Haraway is saying that we're trying to decenter humanity. Oh, uh, right, yeah. We're trying to get rid of bounded individualism and human exceptionalism, so we don't get to name this after ourselves. Right. It's actually just perpetuating the same human centrism. It reinforces the prick tale, mm -hmm. which is the powerful individual or species who, through domination, is defining the story. Yeah. Um... So I actually have a criticism that is not found in Haraway's book that I see come up a lot with this concept of the Anthropocene and blaming the whole species. And I touched on this a tiny bit in the first episode. What I see as a problem here is that we in this culture, or at least in the dominant culture that most of us grow up in here, are steeped in a Judeo-Christian guilt and an idea of unworthiness of God and original sin, that if you are in a Judeo-Christian lineage, then you're going to have some version of that in your moral framework. And so we are taught that humans are evil, unworthy, and susceptible to 
poor decision making, that consciousness itself might be tied to domination and sin, whatever version of sin you have in your framework. And so I see a lot of people, however much they have thrown off the manacles of Christianity, they still have this intense guilt that is one of the dominant themes of the culture that we live in and the concept that humans are just evil. And as I mentioned in the last episode, that is an act of erasure and a lot of, over a lot of cultures that have actually found ways to live and more in harmony with life and as part of life who see themselves as woven into the fabric. But at this also what we see on the individual level is that this deep personal hatred of humans that comes from a, a form of self-hatred in what I have seen. That's interesting. Yeah, it brings up so many things. Uh, should we move on to capitalism? Yes. Okay. So next up is capitalism, which is, I mean, I don't know. Do you know people who actually use that word a lot? No. Yeah, this was something that was, I shouldn't say it was new for me because I immediately recognized it. I have seen a conversation around the term Anthropocene that says, you know, that unfairly places the blame on humanity as a whole, like Janet was saying, when really it's this particular system of power and economic system mm -hmm. that is the one that's unleashing carbon into the world, you know, and the one that exploited fossil fuel resources at such a scale so that it could make people rich. Right. Uh, and that is capitalism. And so some people have argued for it being called the capitalocene, and this was like in opposition to Anthropocene. So right. first the Anthropocene came, and then people were like, are you kidding? It's not Anthropos, it's capital. Right. You know, and uh, Haraway, I think, to her credit in this part of the book, she makes a good case for Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. You know, and then she articulates why she doesn't love it. And then she also makes a good case for Capitalocene mm -hmm. at the same time um, and why it captures some things better than Anthropocene captures. And we're not going to really recapitulate this entire argument because I think it should be clear to you all, hopefully, that the fossil fuel release that is causing the climate catastrophe is so much the result of capitalism, even though some of the extinction events, like the island extinction events, are not the result of capitalism. But we wouldn't say that we were in crisis if it wasn't for capitalism. I don't, I'm not in love with the term capitalocene, but I do understand why it, I maybe agree that it describes the current moment better than Anthropocene because, mm -hmm. because like I'm about making distinctions about who's responsible yes. and who's in power and what's actually driving the things. Mm -hmm. um, and so I get that. What was interesting to me in this chapter was some of Haraway's criticisms of capitalocene mm -hmm. uh not because i again not because i love the term but i think that it was a little bit telling of her to see the way she was pushing back at it at one point and i guess i'll read this she quotes both the anthropocene and the capitalocene lend themselves too readily to cynicism defeatism and self-certain and self-fulfilling predictions like game over too late discourse that i hear all around me and this reminded me of Zizek's famous statement that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Mm -hmm. 
because if calling it the capitalist scene to her immediately invokes the game over mm. mentality, mm -hmm. I'm like, well, why does calling it capitalist scene invoke game over? Right? You know, it, well, because... it reminds me of Ursula K. Le Guin's statement, which mm -hmm. is that capitalism seems inevitable, so did the divine right of kings. And the idea is, we're so in it, we can't mm -hmm. imagine the end to it, which is what Zizek is also saying. Yeah, you right. know, And so I think Haraway's in it and can't imagine the end to it. So she's like, if we call it that, that's what defines it. Right. Which I can kind of see that, actually. If, why name it after what you're trying to get away from? Name it for what you're trying to supersede. Well, I mean, her counter for the Thulu scene is she wants to name this era after what she wants to be happening. Right, and that's actually getting towards... Yeah. Yeah, and thank you for bringing that up because I wanted to talk about just this bigger question of what she's doing here with this quibbling mm -hmm. about the names. Right. Anthropocene and Capitalocene are arguably more descriptive. Right. Of the current moment, mm -hmm. where Thulucene is more prescriptive. Oh. It's more like a prescription for a remedy. Okay. Like how you uh -huh. write a prescription for some medicine. Thulucene is the medicine for our time. Anthropocene and Capitalocene are... The diagnosis. The diagnosis. Oh. You well, know? And, yeah. And so there's a weird way she never... She never addresses the fact that she's changing the framework. She's changing the terms. Uh -huh. She's proposing a name based on different terms. Because people in saying Anthropocene or Capitalocene are laying blame. Mm. Are assigning responsibility. Right. And yeah, Thulucene, that's where we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh -huh. That's where we can see where we need to get to. We need to transcend the Anthropocene. We need to transcend capitalism. We need to get to the Thulucene. But they're coming from different places. The different naming proposals are coming from different places. I think she might argue that it's just a different place to look. Because she might say that she, like Anna Singh, are looking at the disturbed places and seeing what the adaptation looks like within the disturbance, within the contamination, mm -hmm. and naming the era after the response mm -hmm. that is happening at the same time mm -hmm. and not happening in the future. It's already happening. We're already in the Cthulhu scene. She is just naming the entanglement that we're all in and the response that she sees as positive, but I don't think she sees it in the future. And I don't think it's totally prescriptive because I think she's describing what she's seeing when she looks through a certain lens at certain parts of what's happening. She's just describing the response and not the overculture. She may be naming the era for the point. resistance rather than the problem. That's a good point. But don't you think she's trying to uplift something yes. she wished she saw more of? That I will give you. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. She is saying, let us embrace the Thulucene. Let's think in terms of Thulucene so that we're thinking in terms of cooperative problem solving mm -hmm. rather than just defining the problem. Right. I think if I was just going to wrap up what I think the she's saying about these three terms is that when she says that Capitalocene and Anthropocene are teleological. This goes back to the storytelling part, which is that if we're trying to use the mind frame that got us into this mess to solve the problem, then we're not going to find a solution. 
So when she names it Thulucine, she's saying that we don't know the end, we don't know what's going to happen because everything's new and everything is changing and there are new connections and collaborations happening all of the time that we can't imagine yet. And if we continue to use the stories we've already been given, then we think we already know the end. We got an email from a listener, Thomas, who this was about our discussion of chapter one. And he had a number of interesting things to add to the discussion. One of them was um, on the subject of the string figures, the cat's cradle type string figure games that Haraway uses as an image. He added another take on that, saying that he visualized a system of hollow capillaries that stretched and attenuated and swelled with life force while still remaining only channels through which it passed. The last paragraph of his email is on the possible connection or the kind of denied connection between Lovecraft and Haraway. And he writes, Though Lovecraft is barely a footnote in this text, I would like to point out a correlation between the concept of this book and one of his tropes. Often his characters miserably state that the only solace left to them is in the fact that the human mind is simply incapable of comprehending the horrors of fate in the universe. Haraway, it would seem, wants to destroy this false solace by abandoning the cosmic futility and engage our minds with confronting the horrors of ours and the planet's fate. So, yeah, that was really neat. Lovecraft offers his protagonist some solace and Haraway is trying to strip that away. Thanks, Thomas, for that. The Book on Fire podcast at gmail.com. of you who have stuck with us till the end here's a bonus quote from Charles Fort he writes every science is a mutilated octopus if its tentacles were not clipped in stumps it would feel its way into disturbing contacts to a believer the effect of the contemplation of a science is a being in the presence of the good the true the beautiful 
but what he is awed by is mutilation. To our crippled intellects, only the maimed is what we call understandable, because the unclipped ramifies into all other things. According to my aesthetics, what is meant by beautiful is symmetrical deformation.